Amen. Big thanks to everyone who sent in a video of testimonies. That was great. And for all who worked hard to prepare it. And I just remembered as I was watching that last song that I forgot to introduce J.D.'s twin brother. That was his father, actually, David, who put the D in J.D. And so we're very thankful for him stepping up and helping us during this time. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews. We will be bouncing around some today, so you'll need to be a quick turner or just watch the screen behind me, but we will begin in the book of Hebrews. Let me start with a question this morning. Are you a daredevil? Do you like things like rock climbing, skydiving, kite surfing? Is that the kind of sport you like to do? Well, I'm not much of an adventure sport buff myself, but I have been bungee jumping before. Many years ago, a long time ago, I was at the beach and we did the bungee jump. 200 feet high, that's really high. That's half of the Wells Fargo building. And I remember being with my friends and it was kind of a dare. And as we were going up 200 feet tall, I was all about one thing in my mind. And that was checking out the cord, right? And also the safety harness around my feet. And also the clasp. Well, I'm here today, so obviously everything went fine with the crazy bungee jump, but I did turn into a bit of an Adventure Sports Safety Patrol member right before I had to jump because the reality is when you're in a life and death situation, trustworthiness really matters. And it's the same thing in more normal areas of life. If you're waiting for some lab work back for a diagnosis, trustworthiness really matters. If you're hiring a teenager to watch your young child for the first time, trustworthiness really matters. And if trustworthiness is important for the normal things in life, how much more so is it important when you think about spiritual and eternal matters? As followers of Jesus, this is really important when it comes to the Bible. Think about it. The very core and foundation of our faith rests in a Bible that we can trust. Think of the stories of Jesus feeding the 5,000, healing all the people that he healed, raising Lazarus from the dead, walking on water, calming the storm, dying for your sins, being raised again in the resurrection. What do all these mean if they're found to be untrustworthy stories. I like science fiction. I like fantasy stories. But I don't want to hang the hat of my faith on a fairy tale. The Bible must prove to be true. Because if these stories cannot be trusted, then your faith begins to unravel like a loose thread on a parachute. Sending you falling in a free fall head over heels until your faith is dashed on the rocks below. We must trust that we can trust 
the Bible. It just so happens that if you have your eyes into our culture today at all, you'll know that there are many critics of the Bible. I just watched a TV show this weekend, and the, one of the punchlines of a joke was kind of like, ha ha, this person's a Christian, ha ha. And the idea is you can't trust that stuff. It's all over our culture. And it just so happens that one of the main critics of the trustworthiness of the Word of God over the past 20 years, one of the main critics in the world, is actually based here in the Triangle area. Uh, he, he's a professor at UNC Chapel here at Hill. His name is Bart Erdman. And you may have seen him on The Daily Show or Dateline NBC or the History Channel. He's all over the place. He's very famous because he's really smart and he's winsome and he's out to undermine the trustworthiness of the Bible. And even though he's a brilliant man, he and other like, others like him are wrong. Their arguments fall short because the Bible, in fact, does have the words of God. And it can be trusted for all things in life and godliness. And we need to be reminding ourselves of this. Because remember what's at stake. Lifeway Research Center uh, recently did a study and they found out that 66% of children and teenagers who were raised in the church, when they left their parents' church, 66% of them took at least a year off away from the church during those years of 18 to 22. That's at least a year off. And part of it is because Deep down, they didn't trust the Bible. Last week, we finished our sermon series on the Psalms, so we're moving past that. But we finished on uh, Psalm 72. Josh did a great job. If you want to go back and listen to that, if you missed it. But he charged us to seek God's kingdom and not our own. And so this year, like every year, we're going to pursue the kingdom of God through the Word of God. We're going to preach it. We're going to teach it. We're going to sing about it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Hopefully 2021 will be framed around God's very Word. I can think of no better way to start the year of reminding ourselves just how trustworthy the Word of God is. So today, the aim of the sermon, what we're going to be getting at is one question, and it is, why should you trust your Bible, okay? Why should you trust your Bible? And we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 1, at the very beginning, because since the beginning of time, God has made a habit of revealing himself to his people. One glorious thing about God is that he doesn't shy away. He comes, he reveals himself. In the Old Testament, he does this through dreams, through visions, even appearances that we call theophanies. And sometimes he speaks through the prophets like Isaiah. He'll speak through them. Or sometimes he'll speak to people in the Old Testament like Moses. Other times he'll do vast miracles. Remember Elijah who went up on a mountain and he dared all the false gods to light their idol and then he poured all kinds of water on his on his altar and said, "I'm going to make. I'm going to ask the real God, and He's going to make this into fire." And the true living God lit up the altar that was wet 
And that was God's way of communicating. I'm real. I'm here. I want to be near to you. God has always been communicating to His people. In the New Testament, God then drops this huge revelation bomb when He says, Jesus of Nazareth is God. Jesus comes as God. And as it's been said before, Jesus doesn't just bring a message. He is the message. The author of Hebrews will tell us that here in chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to what he says. Talking about the Old Testament, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, our ancestors, by the prophets. But in these last days, in the age of the first century there, he has spoken to us by his Son. Talking about revelation and how God speaks to his people. Now he's speaking through Jesus. John will say in his gospel something very similar in chapter 1, verse 14. John will put it this way. He'll say, And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now both of these verses are going to teach us that Jesus Christ is the epitome of God's self Revelation. God relates personally to people through the person of Jesus Christ and speaking to him. Jesus is called the Word because he embodies God's communication to his people. So as we begin a sermon on the Bible, let's not forget that Jesus himself is the message to us from God. He is the way the truth, and the life. He came into this world through the virgin birth that we just celebrated at Christmas, lived a perfect life, died for the sins of all of his people, and he rose again triumphantly. He is God's message to us. However, the Father planned that the Son would not stay here and would go to be with God in heaven after the resurrection. So that leaves us in this tweener time. God revealed himself best in the Son, but the Son's no longer here. He's in heaven. We'll meet him again. Now we are living in this tweener time. Who are we to trust? Well, God has given us three great gifts. The Spirit, who speaks to us internally. The church that you're experiencing right now, the very body and bride of Christ. And then his word. God reveals himself in his word. Since this is a sermon about the Bible, we're going to concentrate on that third point, the very word of God. And as we begin, the first question you want to ask is what does the Bible say about itself? When it comes to trustworthiness, what is the Bible communicating to you? What does it claim to be? Well, if you look in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, the Apostle Paul will write this. It's amazing if you think about what he's saying. He says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. So it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. Breathed out by God. That language says it comes from God himself. Elsewhere, when recounting his own preaching about the scriptures, Paul commends the church in Thessalonica by saying this. 
He says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men. It's not, not what the Bible is. It's not the word of man. But as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you as believers. Here we hear that the Bible's not just the word of God, but it's dynamic. It's not just static. It is working in us as God's very word. So the Bible itself is going to claim to be God's word. That's really the first reason that you can trust your Bible. Academics will call this self-attestation. It claims to be God's very word. When you're reading the scriptures, you should know that built into the storyline is what you're reading are the words of God itself. Now, why is that important? Now, think about what we would have if the Bible did not claim to be God's word. Not long ago, I took my daughter in to have a uh, surgery, and I went in to the doctor, and he had like six diplomas on his wall right when you walked in. It's like, whoa, diploma overkill. Imagine if you went into a heart surgeon's office, and you walked in there and you saw zero diplomas, no medical license, and you tell the guy, what's up? And he said, well, I, hey, I never claimed to have medical knowledge. You wouldn't want to trust that guy. The very first foundation of trust is you need to claim yourself that you are trustworthy. You at least need to do this. And the Bible does this. The Bible says it is trustworthy. Now, a thoughtful person could hear object and say, now, now wait a minute. That's not really proof. That's circular reasoning. You can't base your hope in proving the Bible just because the very thing you're trying to prove, the Bible says that it's trustworthy. And that's a good counter-argument, but you must remember that anyone who claims to have trustworthiness or authority must make a circular argument. For instance, I remember asking one of my uh, relatives one time, who's a non-believer, I said, man, how do you how do you know what's good and bad? How, how do you know what to trust in life when you're making your decisions? And he said to me, well, I trust in my own experience. And I said, but why? Why do you trust in your own experience? He said, well, it's just been my experience that that worked for me. So I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Also, I remember asking an academic friend of mine, very brilliant person, I said, how do you determine what is right and what is good. And they said, well, I own, I trust my own logic, my own reason. And I said, well, why do you do that? And she said, well, it's always seemed reasonable for me to do that. You can see that any claim to authority or trustworthiness is going to be a bit circular. It doesn't mean it's wrong. In other words, when the Bible claims to be the word of God, we should listen. That is significant but we need more reasons than that. That's a good starting point. Now let me give you the second, probably most important reason why you can trust the Bible. It might surprise you. As you read the Bible, God gives you an internal conviction that His words are trustworthy. 
Okay? Something supernatural happens when you open the Bible. God gives you an internal conviction that his words are trustworthy. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul was talking about he himself as an apostle and the process of receiving revelation and passing it on. Listen to what Paul says. It's fascinating. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 2. He says, Now we have received, talking about himself as an apostle, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given to us by God. So as an apostle, Paul caught inspiration, revelation, directly from God through the Holy Spirit. Then he passes this on through his sermons and his New Testament letters. Verse 13, listen to what he says. And we impart in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's what's happening when you read the Bible. The Spirit actually confirms and interprets and lets you know that God's words are true. 14 is key. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Anyone who's coming at you and saying the Bible is not true has a natural mind. They will never accept that the Bible is true. The Bible is folly to them. And he's not able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. The reason we trust the Bible is because God reveals it to us to be true. I saw not long ago a talented illusionist on TV. His name was Justin, and he had one of the coolest magic tricks that I've ever seen. Uh, He went out to a park, and he got 50 people to be in on this one magic trick, okay? He grabbed a bunch of people and said, hey, you all want to be in a trick? He said, yep. They gathered them all together. And he said, we're going to fool someone into thinking that they are invisible. And they're all like, what? How could you do that? And he said, let me do some prep work. So what he does is he gives one guy some water to hold in his mouth. All right? That's a setup for the trick. On the other side, he gets two women to come up who are in on the joke, And one of them takes the picture on her phone, and the other one sits behind an empty chair like this. All right? That's a setup to the joke. Now, along comes the mark, a guy who's not in on it named Jonathan. All right? When Jonathan sits down, the magician, he starts to do his thing, and he says, I'm going to make water invisible. And he pours water in a fake water cup, and nothing comes out into an empty cup. Follow? So he takes this cup over to the actor and the actor drinks it and then he spits real water out. So Jonathan, who didn't see the setup, Jonathan's like, oh man, that water was invisible. Next, he calls up another person in on the joke and he has him sit here and he says, does anybody want to be turned invisible? Of course, Jonathan's like, yeah. He's like, hey, how about you? Of course, he picks Jonathan, right? Uh, So Jonathan sits over here The guy who's in on it sits over here, and the magician has already prepared a getaway. He throws a blanket over this guy. The guy goes out the secret way, and then he throws up the blanket. And now you just have a chair with nobody in it. 
So it looks like he's turned a man invisible. All the while, this guy Jonathan is sitting here like, oh man, this is crazy. So he turns to Jonathan and he says, do you want to be invisible now? And he's like, yes. So he throws the blanket over it and then he whips it off and everybody in the crowd goes, wow! They act like they can't see him. Uh, and then, remember those two women, they come back up, they do the exact same thing. One takes a picture one does this, but they show Jonathan the previous picture where there's nobody in the chair. At this point, dude is completely convinced he's invisible. So he starts sneaking around the crowd. He even takes something out of a woman's bag, and a woman says, look, it's floating. And he's like, oh. Later in the trick, he set the Jonathan back down, and he put the magic blanket back over it. He takes it off, and all the all the crowd's like, there he is! Yeah, he's back! Yay! Now, if you think about this poor guy, having just lived through that experience, there is no way you're going to convince him of something just by telling him. Someone's going to have to reveal on camera what happened because his mind has been so hoodwinked by that magician. And that's, in a way the way the Bible works for unbelievers. Natural minds have been deceived. Satan himself has hoodwinked the minds of believers already corrupt from the fall and their own sin. It's going to take the Holy Spirit to reveal to a natural mind they will never believe and trust that the Bible is real unless the Holy Spirit Reveals it to him. We see this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. Paul says this, The God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Satan has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. The only hope for us in seeing is to experience an unblinding. Right? And that's what God does. We see Jesus when he heals people. It's like he's taking the scales off of their eyes. God does this to us as we read the Bible by his spirit so that we begin to trust it. It's very similar to what Jesus said in the book of John. Remember Jesus said, My sheep, they will hear my voice. And I know them and they will follow me. Apologist John Frame says it this way. In encountering the Holy Spirit in the Bible, our thinking is energized, it's empowered. Things that once seemed incredible now seem like obvious truth. One begins to think according to the biblical worldview. And that's why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 2 that we now have the mind of Christ. It has been opened up to see and trust that the Bible is trustworthy. Ultimately, we trust in the Word because God Himself convinces us through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's good to use arguments if someone challenges the veracity of the Bible, and we should do that, but ultimately, God must open the eyes. 
And he has opened our eyes, and we shouldn't let go of that. We can trust that. Uh, theologian and author Wayne Grudem, in one quote, he lists several great reasons to trust the Bible. I'm going to read them off. I wish we had long enough today to preach through all the great reasons to trust the Bible. But he says, this reason of God revealing himself is the ultimate reason. It's called the Spirit's revelation. Listen to what he says. It's helpful for us to learn that the Bible is historically accurate. That's a great reason to trust the Bible. Whenever it's been tested, it's historically accurate. You can test this through archaeology. The Bible stands up. It's also internally consistent. Anytime you want to trust a worldview, you look for coherence and consistency. The Bible is internally consistent. It contains prophecies that have been fulfilled hundreds of years later. When I was at the University of Tennessee doing my undergraduate work, I had a statistics class. This brilliant teacher had figured up the statistical probability of all of the Old Testament uh, prophecies coming true in Jesus without any supernatural uh, work, right? So what are the chances that Jesus would happen to fulfill all of the Old Testament? It was like 0.00001% chance that that would ever happen by just uh, crazy circumstances. You can trust that prophecies have been fulfilled. That's a good reason to trust the Bible. The Bible has influenced the course of human history more than any other book. Actually, the uh, greatest selling book even today, uh, more than two times any other competing book, the Bible is the number one. Average American household has three or four Bibles in it. That's not the best reason to trust it, though. It has continued changing lives of millions of individuals throughout its history. That's a good reason. Through it, people came to find salvation. It has a majestic beauty and a profound depth of teaching unmatched by any other book. And it claims hundreds of times over to be God's very words. All of these arguments and others are useful to us and remove obstacles that might otherwise come in the way of believing Scripture. But all of these arguments taken individually or together cannot finally be convincing. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority in the Bible is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word of God in our heart. The Spirit, constantly to the heart of the believer, assures you that the Bible is true. It reveals to you these are the very works of God. So we trust the Bible because the Spirit has revealed it to be true. And this can be a great comfort to you this year. We're starting out a new year. 21 is finally here. Some of us have looked so forward to 21, and now it's here, and it's kind of like, hey, we're still wearing masks. Maybe the calendar isn't going to magically change things, but you can be comforted this year. If you hear a critic of the Bible that has some new challenge you haven't heard, oh, wow, I've never thought about that before. That doesn't erase the revelation God has given you by His Spirit. Just like think about how you were born again. You were born again by the Father through the work of the Spirit. Someone comes up and says, hey, I don't think you're really saved. That doesn't erase what the Spirit did in converting you. 
revealing to you the glory of Jesus Christ. The same is true for the Bible. The Spirit reveals to you the trustworthiness of the Bible. No argument can undo revelation. However, we still have challenges. So the third reason to trust the Bible, not only does it say it's the Word of God, not only does the Spirit of God prove it to you as a believer, the Spirit reveals it to you. Thirdly, the Bible defeats all challengers. We could spend many sermons speaking about how the Bible stands up for 2,000 years against all arguments against it. Today I'm just going to look at two, some of the most popular arguments you will hear from the brightest and best critics. Okay, We'll look at two here. Uh, and if you're interested in this sort of thing, um, particularly I would recommend it if you are a late teenager in college. Uh, this book that I'm holding up here is called Truth Matters. It was written uh, by some local professors here in town uh, to defend against critics the most popular arguments. You can read Truth Matters. be a really helpful uh, resource for you. I've read it over Christmas, and so as we talk today, know that I am learning from others. I do not have a, a specialized degree in apologetics. I'm not a professor of New Testament, but I'm learning from people, and you can too, by reading Truth Matters and other really good resources. Whenever you hear a critic against the Bible, if you feel pressured to answer someone in that moment, just know that for 2,000 years, many, many books have been written defending the Bible. We have good answers to all of the challengers. The Bible has always defeated every challenge. So we're going to look at two challenges today. They're both against the New Testament. All right, it's the good reasons to believe that you can trust your Bible. Here's the first very common challenge. You'll hear this. People will tell you that the Bible was put together to suit an agenda. All right, the Bible was put together to suit someone's corrupt agenda. This was the theme of the old movie Da Vinci Code. If you ever watched that movie uh, a while ago, I was talking to a friend once, and we were in the uh, exercise gym, and I just talked to him, hey, do you ever read the Bible? Uh, And he wasn't a believer, and I remember him telling me, you know, I don't trust the Bible because a bunch of corrupt men threw it together in the 300s to accomplish their own agenda. And then he did what he thought was going to be a mic drop, and he said, you probably don't even know, but there are a lot of books from the same time that should have been in the Bible, but they weren't put in there, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary. And in this guy's mind, he had just dissolved every accurate argument against the Bible through this one criticism. And you will hear it a lot on television and from uh, sophisticated critics, basically, that the Bible was put together, the New Testament, in the 300s to accomplish a corrupt Agenda. How do we answer this? Well, nothing can be further from the truth. We actually see, in reality, shortly after Pentecost, that we see in Acts 2, 300 years before critics claim, the New Testament authors and the local churches already start accepting 
some of the books that we have in the New Testament. So right after it was written, we see local churches already beginning to cull through and accept and recognize what is valid and what is not. You can actually see it in the New Testament for yourself. If you look at 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, Peter is writing here. This is someone who saw Jesus. He's writing in 2 Peter 3. And he's writing to say that what I say agrees with what Paul says. And he says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So Peter just talked about doctrine. He said, what I'm saying is just like what Paul wrote to you. As he does in all of his letters when he speaks of these matters. Now, almost as an afterthought, listen to what Peter says here in chapter 3. He says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Amen to that. If you've read them, they are hard to understand sometimes. Peter says, ignorant and unstable people are going to twist Paul's letters to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Right? When Peter says, as they do other scriptures, understand what's happening. In AD 64... Peter is putting Paul's letters on par with the Old Testament canon. The Old Testament is much less disputed by critics. They go after the New Testament. And here, AD 64, just 30 years after Jesus has died, Peter is saying, the stuff Paul wrote, it is the words of God as much as the Old Testament scriptures are. So you can see very early on in history, the apostles we're recognizing what is the true word of God and what is not. This is 300 years before my friend in the gym says that a council decided all of this. It's, it's just not true. You see it elsewhere in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5, for instance, verse 18. Peter was writing before. Now this time Paul is writing. All right? And in verse 18... Of 1 Timothy 5, Paul writes this. He says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So right there he is quoting Deuteronomy 25.4 from the Old Testament. Not muzzle, not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. That quote, the labor deserves his wages, is not from Deuteronomy. It's actually from the Gospel of Luke. So what you see Paul doing here, just like Peter did, he is putting, he's calling Luke's writing scriptures, just like he calls Deuteronomy scriptures. Paul is writing here AD 62, we think. Once again, the local church, through the help of the apostles, are recognizing the writings that are true and really are scripture. If something was not scripture, it would not get recognized by the early church. Long before critics say councils decided what was the word of God. As you look at lists from the early church fathers, by AD 150, all of the New Testament lists begin to match about what is recognized. Again, that's 200 years before critics say some crabby old guys got together and they wanted to suit a political agenda, so they put the Bible together. Now, all this happened much, much 
earlier. Once eyewitnesses of uh, the New Testament happenings who have met Jesus, once they begin to die out around AD 100, no other books are going to be recognized. Only books that were written by a follower of Jesus or someone new, an apostle, only eyewitness testimony were recognized as the Word of God. Other books like Thomas and the Gospel of Mary, they weren't recognized. <clears throat> they weren't written early enough, and their content was just a little hokey. Uh, for instance, let me give you my favorite hokey content from one of these other Gospels that some say should really be in the Bible, but corrupt agenda men took them out. It's called the uh, Letter of Ptolemy. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. Uh, anyway, this writ letter was written 100 years after Paul wrote his letters, okay? So 100 years later, it's already really late, this guy starts writing, yet critics will tell you that it's on par with the New Testament. And in this book, this letter to Ptolemy, the Old Testament, according to this letter, came from not God, but from a separate entire deity, named Demiurge, not Demi Moore, the 90s star, but Demiurge, according to this letter, came and gave the Old Testament and wrote it all. Now that is bananas. It's nothing like any other part of the New Testament. The content's so bogus and it's written so late that this would never be recognized as canon. There are very good reasons that aren't political why this got uh, culled out over the years. And we could go on and on and on with various examples, but the point is, this very common criticism that's keeping many people away from exploring the Bible, especially today with social media, just about every comment on social media is somewhat political, it seems. So people will say, you know, just like comments today is political, the Bible was just chosen by people with political agenda. It's not true. Just a little bit of research into the actual happenings in the actual way that the New Testament was compiled will prove that the Bible was not put together for some agenda. How about another challenge to the Bible? Another common challenge. One common challenge is how can you trust the Bible if you don't have the real words of God? You will hear this sometimes. The reason people say that is two reasons. One, hopefully you know that the Bible you're reading in your hands or on your phone is written in English. And 2,000 years ago, they did not write in English. They wrote in Greek and Aramaic. Right? So we have a translation of the original. All right? But um, what happened in the original... Letters from Peter and Paul and Matthew and Mark, they were written on material that wasn't meant to last. Okay, it was ancient material and it disintegrated over time. Okay, how do we know what it said? Well, very, very early on, just like any ancient piece of writing, there were copies made. People would set the copy down and they would write it. All right, so the criticism is. If the original is not present, you should never trust a copy. All right? Understand the criticism of what people are saying? How can you trust the Bible? You don't even have the very letter that Paul wrote. It's disintegrated. How can you trust the Bible? 
critics will say this, and we need to be able to respond. I was recently at the grocery store, and I was doing some shopping, and my wife had tested me the grocery list on my phone, and so I read it because I value efficiency. I have my teenagers with me, and I said, okay, let's divide and conquer this grocery list. Grocery shopping is not natural for me, so I need help. So I have my teens there, and I said, Isaiah, you go, and you get the bread. And he's like, okay, also, you know, grab some cheese. I'm like, all right, Anna, you grab some drinks and some yogurt. She's like, okay, and she goes, and I'll get the fruit and vegetables. All right, and we'll meet back here, and we'll have everything on the list. Now, when I said that, my teenagers had zero problems bringing back yogurt, bread, drinks, and cheese. Yet, they were working off, not the original text from my wife, not the reading on the phone, but an oral transmission. All right? That goes to show you don't have to have the original copy to be very, very accurate. Now, textual transmission of the New Testament is a little more involved, but it is the same principle. A copy can be extremely reliable if it was made from the original text. So, understand that everything written in the first century, it is gone. So, if you ever read any history about the first century, that's all read by copies. All right, None of that stuff, uh, unless it was engraved on stone or something like that, all of the written on Papyri, the stuff they've written on, has been disintegrated. But uh, one Old Testament scholar said it like this. This is a pretty interesting analogy. He says, suppose you wanted to measure a pencil, the common pencil, and you took out your tape measure, and you measured it to be six and a half inches. All right, But you wanted a more accurate measurement of that pencil, so you might use a different tool. Let's say you used an engineer's scale, and you measured it, and it turned out to be 6.58 inches. But you weren't satisfied by that. So you sent it off to Washington, D.C., where they have these master gauges that are checked by the actual, you may not know this, but there's an actual standard yard in Washington that all of our measuring scales are based off. It's a metal standard yard. And these gauges in Washington are based off of this yard. And they take your pencil on the gauge and they find out that it's 6.57775. All right, follow me? So now you've had three ways to measure your pencil. But suppose the next day you wake up and you hear online that some clever criminal has actually stolen the original brass standard upon which all measurements are made in the United States. They broke in, they melted it down, they wanted the precious metal, and they stole it. Would that mean that your measurement of the pencil is inaccurate? No way. Just because the original has been dissolved, it doesn't change that your um, facsimile, your copy measurement, in fact, your measurement is still very valuable because it's an accurate copy of the standard. It's the same thing with the New Testament. You will hear, because you don't have the actual ink that Paul used, you can't have the Word of God. But what happened was Paul wrote it, and then several other guys just copied it word for word. And we have that, or we have a copy made from that. It is very reliable. When you think about the ancient world, 
scholars will use two measurements to determine whether any piece of literature is valuable or trustworthy from the ancient world. First, they will look and see how many copies are available of that letter, right? Secondly, they will look, when is the date of the copies? Because if you have a copy that's 200, 300, 400 years old, it might not be as reliable as if you had a copy that was 50 years from the original, all right? So when scholars look at this, they make comparison. So for instance, let me tell you what I'm talking about. If you take any accepted first century literature, like uh, Tacticus, for instance. Tacticus was a Roman historian, and everybody looks at Tacticus to understand the Roman world. They quote him, they trust him, he is reliable. But in truth, if you look at Tacticus, we only have three copies of his original writing. So his original writing disintegrated. We have three copies of that original. You know how early they are? These three copies date from 800 years later. 800 years later, and yet we say that Tacticus is the source for all of the Roman Empire that we know about. We trust this guy. But all the copies, copy, 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 all those have vanished until you finally have one 800 years later. Another guy, Josephus, was a Jewish writer. All that we know about the first century Jewish world comes from this great scholar, Josephus. Same thing, he was writing in the first century, but we lost all of the copies of his work. Now with him, we have 50 copies. That's a lot better than Tacticus. His work was preserved better. You know when they show up? They show up 900 years after the original was written. All the copies between them have gone, and so we're willing to trust copies 900 years. So how does the New Testament that is being criticized on TV, on Dateline, on your documentaries, it's always criticized as being, hey, we don't have the originals. Well, that's true, but we have a lot better, we stack up a lot better than any other writing from the ancient world. The New Testament that was written at the same time as Tacticus and uh, Josephus, the New Testament, we have 5,700 copies. All right, Tacticus we had three, Josephus we have 50, with the New Testament, 5,700. thousand times more than the average ancient piece of work. But when are the copies from? 25 to 30 years after the original. All right? Tacticus was 800 years. Josephus, 900 years. We have copies from 25 to 30 years after the originals were written. If you stack the New Testament up to any ancient work of art, it far outshines anything. So if you're going to tell us you don't trust the Bible, then you also aren't trusting any of the ancient literature. It's just a bogus, weak criticism. But it's very, very popular, and it is stealing the faith of many people who have never heard these arguments. So we must realize that these arguments, and we could go on forever, don't worry, I won't, but all of these arguments against the Bible are just out there. They're flying around, and you'll hear them, and you need to know they are not true. You do have the Word of God. In this book, the authors will say, of course, there are many questions, there are many questions raised about the Bible, 
but we would like to raise some of our own to the critics because the bigger questions when you examine the Bible are this. Is Christianity true? Is Jesus divine? Did he die on the cross for me? Did he rise from the dead? Is Jesus the only way? What is the gospel? And when, will you and I believe the gospel? These are the type of questions that we need to be posing to the people in our lives in 2021. We need to be asking them, can you believe Jesus? Do you know that he rose from the dead? Can you trust that he died for our sins? We need to be asking questions of those in our culture. Now we've seen three good reasons here to trust the Bible. The Bible claims it's trustworthy. The Spirit reveals that it's trustworthy. And the Bible defeats any challengers that come its way. And so I want to say this pastorally here. The challenges against the Bible will claim objectivity, but they are biased. As we said earlier, they come from a mind that hates God already. We have to keep that in mind. And because the Word of God is trustworthy, let's make this year the year that we dive into the Bible. We use the apps on our phone. We have a Bible reading plan. We have a set place every day that we go to the Word of God because it will prove trustworthy. You can lean into it. You might have doubts along the way, but in the end, God has revealed to you that it's worthy of your time. You can trust the Bible. We ended 2020 meditating on different psalms. Today, I want to take a brief look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 has been called the love poem of God. Some call it the Mount Everest of the Psalter because it has 180 verses, 180 verses. A famous Puritan preacher named Thomas Manton, he once preached 190 sermons on this one psalm. It is worthy of your attention, but it's all about the Word of God. If you want to meditate on the Word of God, read through Psalm 119. Commandments, statutes, precepts that are all different words for God's holy Scriptures. My hope is as we read it, and as you continue your journey in the Bible throughout this year, that the Spirit will empower you, will transform you, will recreate you, will captivate you in His Word. And you will be morphed into someone who treasures Christ even more than you did last year. I'm just going to read from um, verse 25 in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 25 says, My soul clings to the dust. That described 220 for you, 2020? My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. God answers his people through his word. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow again. If you're in a valley today, listen to the psalmist. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me 
your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. If you feel shamed, or that somebody is putting you to shame, cling to the Scriptures. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I need an enlarged heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding. Carrie just testified on the video. We long for understanding. Give me understanding that I might keep your law. Not that I'll figure out every question in life, but that I might keep the word and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. There's a juxtaposition. Incline towards God, selfish gain. They cannot go together. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your way. Confirm to your servant your promise. Confirm to your servant your word that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. I will trust in your word. And that's my prayer for us this coming year. Let's pray together. God, I pray that we will trust in your word. Let our people dive into it for the pool of life that it is. Let us be refreshed. Let us be cleansed by the wonderful delights we find in your word. Help us, God, to be comforted. Challenge us. Encourage us. Embolden us to go with a mission to our neighbors and co-workers and friends and families and to those who have never heard the gospel through the reading of your word. God, by your spirit, come and touch us today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.